Welcome to episode 3292 of the Survival Podcast. Listener feedback, 441823. When I tell you everything that's going to be on the episode today, and we start working through all the material, if you're like, gee, I wish you would talk about blah, 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 then send me an email and ask me to talk about blah, 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 whatever that is. Don't say blah, 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 because I won't do it. Um, I guess I just did. Anyway, uh, send me an email, jack at the survivalpodcast.com, TSPC in the subject line. That will make sure I find it if it goes into the spam box. And with links and words that get used in those kinds of questions, it often does. If you have a link or a resource or an article, give me that. Then give me your question or what you want me to talk about in one sentence, just one sentence. Then if you have additional details, hit return a couple times to give me the details. This will make it a lot more likely that you will get past my screening process and actually end up on the show. I cannot possibly put every email I get on the show. I couldn't put all the emails I get in one day on the show if I did five days of shows like this. But I try to create a lot of variety and pick from things. And I try to pick things that like if I get six emails about the same thing in a week, I try to bring that thing on. But I will cover just about anything if you follow the suggestion, if you follow the suggestion. Um, Anyway, what are we going to talk about today? And uh, there's a question right now on the screen from News That Doesn't Suck. How do you make the live 1.75x like a podcast? I don't think you can go faster on live, dude. I don't think that's possible. I think you're not getting how live works. You would have to be into the future before I said it to go faster. Anyway. Maybe you can to catch up. I don't know, but we just started, so you probably don't need to. Anyway, um, we're going to talk about biochar today. I keep getting questions about it, not so much in the emails on social media. Hey, this is my biochar. Did I make biochar? Can I make biochar this way? Can I use the ash out of my oven, uh, my my wood stove or whatever? You know, like I'm going to try to explain this again in a very short version versus the two-hour seminar I did on it. And the way to know if you have biochar and what is biochar. I also have another question later in the show about biochar uh, that we'll cover when we get to it. But I also have a question about what to do with cash if you're planning a major purchase in the short to midterm, like a house. Should I put all my money in gold? The short answer is no. We'll get to that. But I, I smell fear of the banking crisis here. And we have to be careful that we don't let fear make us do something stupid. And fear usually does result in us doing something indeed stupid. Um, next up, how bad is the pesticide risk to the U.S. food supply? I find this interesting. This is one of these people, they do this to me all the time. They send me a TikTok video. They ask me a question. And then the question they're asking me isn't what really is in the material that they sent me. But I think it's an interesting discussion anyway, so we'll talk about it. Because they're asking about how far pesticide can move horizontally through the soil. And the answer to that is not really very far. Um, across soil is one thing. Through soil is another. But the video is actually really concerning. Well, you'll hear when you hear. Or you'll see when you see if you're in the uh, live stream. Um, all the cool things you can do with sous vide. The sous vide cooker I ran yesterday is still on sale today. That worked out. I don't know if it'll be on sale tomorrow, but it is on today. And yesterday I wanted to talk about sous vide cooking, but I didn't because it didn't fit the rest of the show. 
So we'll do that today. Um, a question about doing TSPC meetups. I'll tell you that those already do happen. And uh, well, a really kind of a cool story of something that happened with a show guest and a member of the audience who go back a while uh, and reconnected through that episode. Another college is closing. It sounds exactly like an article I wrote three years ago. So we'll talk a little bit about my article from three years ago in the summer of 2020. And this small private college that's closing and the impact it will have on the town that it's in. It's almost like redneck hippies know what they're talking about. I guess if they're redneck hippie duck farmers, they know what they're talking about. Because we have ducks to help guide us in our wisdom. And there's nothing that will guide your wisdom better than a flock of ducks. Trust me. Uh, next up, <clears throat> the biochar question, second biochar question, kind of spaced them out. A guy can get commercial biochar. It's not charged up. It's not, uh, it's not been made habitable, right? And so if you use raw biochar, it can create problems. So what would I do if I had access to raw biochar but didn't have compost? We'll talk about that. Um, moving as a prepper, I'll tell you a funny story when we get to that one, but any advice I have for that? Construction backlog is the lowest since August 2022, and 9,000 people in the construction industry lost their jobs in the last quarter. We'll talk about why it's not as bad as it sounds, but why it's a, well, it's a canary in the coal mine kind of thing, the construction industry. And I think you're only beginning to see the waning of that industry right now. And which animals can be raised with zero supplemental feed on pasture only? We'll talk about that and whether or not you should even do that with most animals. And then I'm going to talk a little bit more about the Grow Noster initiative for some of you that are holdouts, because I'd really like to get you over there, because what is beginning to happen with the Grow Noster initiative is really, really exciting, and it is the future of this parallel economy everybody talks about, but no one seems to be able to skin. If you have an existing net network with switched-on productive people that already has an integrated payments solution, Maybe that's a network you should be part of and stop worrying about whether it's connected to Bitcoin or not and start thinking about, do I want to be part of a network of excited, energetic, smart people who are productive that want to do business with each other that have an integrated payment network already there that's uncensorable, borderless and works instantly? If you look at it that way, it kind of answers itself, like, why wouldn't you? All right. So before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today is John Pugliano with the Will Steading Podcast. John's a great dude, and he has really the heart of a servant. He has always done everything he can to help out the survival podcast in our audience. He serves as a member of our expert council. He has a great podcast, relatively short episodes, generally 8 to 15 minutes, sometimes a little longer, but usually that's about his wheelhouse. And he has a ton of really interesting stuff you can check out. He's on Apple. He's on Google. He's on Spotify. He's on Stitcher. He's got RSS feed because all podcasters do or they're not real podcasters. He's also available on Fountain.fm where you can send him value through the Value to Value Network. So please keep doing that because every time uh, John Pugliano gets a boost or a stream on Fountain, Jack was right. Again, and Pugliano was wrong again, because the one place we need to move the needle with John is Bitcoin. He'll get there. He'll get Boomers have a hard time with Bitcoin. Anyway, next up today, start nine sovereign computing. If you want to take back your digital sovereignty, 
and take back control, you want to get one of these guys right here, Start9 Embassy Server. Remember, they do discounts for MSB members at 9%. When you get a discount from my membership program, you get 9% off. They just had their uh, discount rate cut on their uh, gift card option on the fold card, but it's still something like 4 or 5%. So you can stack that discount with my discount and do really well for yourself. You want to get one of these, though, because you can take back full control of everything you do online. If you say you use the crowd, the cloud, I'm sorry, the crowd. If you say you use the cloud in your work, then you're lying, even if you don't mean to, because there is no cloud. There's no such thing as cloud computing. There's no such thing as I'm in the cloud. All there is is somebody else's computer somewhere else that they have access to and all the information, and it's a potential for a security breach or for them to snoop on you, which they're happy to do. Sell your information to other people. Give your information to the government. If you start using Start9, that will all go away. You have complete and total control of everything. End-to-end encrypted messaging. Store all your files. Uh, run a Bitcoin node. Run a Lightning node and do a bunch of other things. And if you can install apps on a phone, you can use the Start9 Embassy server. With that, let's go ahead and dig into what we have to talk about today. Um, again, I, I've i been getting a ton of questions about biochar. And I've been getting those questions mostly in social media and mostly people going, look what I've done is this biochar. And the answer to that a lot of times for me is, well, I don't know. Uh, I've answered a few with that looks an awful lot like... It's got a lot of ash on it, and so I don't know if you rinsed it or not, and I don't know if that's the lighting, and I really can't look at a picture of a pile of burnt stuff and tell you if you made biochar. A still picture won't do it. You need to do certain things where you can determine whether what you've made is – like it's all biochar in a way, right? It's just what's the quality. Right. Charcoal is charcoal. So all biochar is charcoal, but not all charcoal is what we call biochar. But in the end, it is. And it is because it's char and it's made from biological stuff. So biochar. But what we're looking for with biochar is full, uh, full combustion and leaving nothing but the carbon skeleton is what we're looking for. And we want all nice little houses for our microorganisms to live in and everything. So there are four key things that you can look for in the final product. And if you have all four of them, you most definitely have made a good quality biochar. Now, will it be the same quality as a precision uh, temperature uh, commercial retort? Probably not. Who cares? It'll be plenty good for what you're doing. The first one, and this is to me the most telling thing, that you know you've not just made charcoal, and biochar, but you've made good biochar. And, and the way you know that is it has very little uh, remnant left over as far as uh, volatiles, like oils and tars and things like that. All of that's been pushed off and combusted in the burn. And the way you know that is you don't have to send it to a laboratory. Take some of the charcoal that you've made and get your hands all dirty with it. So it looks like you've been playing with dirty tire, tires all day. Now, if you've been, if you've ever worked with tires, you know that getting that off your hands is hard. My old man used to keep a box of powdered Tide in the back of his tire shop because it was one of the few things that would literally you take powdered Tide like dish detergent, I mean uh, laundry detergent, and you could actually get all the tire dirt off your hands. 
If you've made good biochar, the only thing there is carbon. And so your hands can be black as night, just rinsed with cold water. And you might have to scrub a little bit as far as rubbing your hands together. But with no soap, no rag, you should be able to rinse your hands almost completely clean. If you can do that, you have made quality quality biochar because you don't have any tars and oils because those will stay on the hands and require a detergent to remove. That's one. Two is it should easily crush in your hands. Now, that doesn't mean crush down to the small particle size that we're looking for. But when you're done with your burn and you've quenched it or you've extinguished it and it's completely out and it's not hot and it's not going to burn you, you should be able to pick up a lump, let's say a baseball-sized lump of it, and with you know the standard strength of a man hand, you should be able to go, and it should crumble. If it doesn't crumble, it ain't biochar. It's still wood. Like you've really failed if you can't break it in your hands. That doesn't mean you might get some smaller pieces that seem really hard to break or anything, but overall, it should crumble in your hands, rinse cleanly. Next, when you break a piece of it and you look at the profile of where you fractured it, it should be black all the way through. If you see in the center of it stuff that looks brown, that looks woody versus pyrolyzed, you're not, it didn't completely combust. Uh, and last, when it's dry, because I quench mine, it takes days for it to fully dry. But when it's dry, if you pick it up and you, you, you kind of run it through your fingers like a miser with gold in a movie, it should sound like tinkling glass if it's dry. If it does all those things, you've got biochar. If it fails on any of those, you either don't have biochar or some of it's not fully combusted. Now, here's what happens every time I run my cone kiln. I'll throw some bigger hunks in there, and a lot of times those bigger pieces, when they come out, they won't break. They won't fracture. They won't crumble. They're not done. That doesn't mean there's anything wrong with the rest of it. I just set it aside, and then I'm going to go ahead, and the next time I run a, a burn, I'll put I'll pitch that back in, kind of like pitching back your heads and tails if you make some shine, right? And uh, Bill Hudson says, can raw char be added initially and your Johnson Sioux light compost. You can take raw char and you can put it in any composting system at the beginning. And by the time the compost is done, it's ready. To, you're, you're good. That's the easy button. We'll talk more about that in a question I have later. But yes, absolutely, you can and you should add biochar to any composting system that you have. And it's the way where you don't have to radically change what you do to add a thing to what you're doing. So I make biochar. I, br I bust it up and I use it through the wood chipper because, like I said, if it's quenched and you wait two days till it begins to dry, but it's still really damp at the core, you can put it right through a wood chipper. Boom. No problem. No dust cloud. No, no, nothing. Right. So no matter how you do that, it doesn't matter. You break it up and I put it in five gallon buckets. Every time I put down a bale or two or a couple of wheelbarrows of wood chips in my duck house, which is where all my material to make my compost, the bulk material comes from, I add a five-gallon and a whole five-gallon bucket down. And then I layer on the next layer of bedding. That's made my duck house stink less. I have way less flies, even with all the brooding going on there. And there is some – anybody that's hatched eggs, you know, there's like a, a hatched egg stink. There's some of that going on in there. Um, but it's, it's way better than it usually is this time of year. Now, what that does – for me, is it allows me when I make my my compost at the end of this season, I don't have to do anything. 
Like the biochar will be in the material, so the biochar will be in the compost. It will be fully mixed up. It will be part of the composting process. It's ready to go. I don't have to do anything. Now, we got a question that is something I'm dealing with myself right now, because if you discover biochar at the beginning of the season, you've already done your major composting for the year. What do you do? We'll talk about that in a few different ways. But you should definitely include biochar in all your composting. If you are doing black soldier flies, I would be putting black, I would be putting uh, charcoal in with the black soldier flies, though I would be careful with that at first because I don't know if it might inhibit black soldier fly activity. I'm not sure because it definitely inhibits uh, housefly activity. I don't know if it's just because it's absorbing the volatiles of the manure and less attractive, but there's definitely less flies in my duck house than typical. I would absolutely include it in worm composting. I have a, it's a four inch PVC pipe end cap. Like if you just wanted to cap the end of a run and you like, that's about the size of it. I figure that's about a half cup. Every time I add a bunch of material to my vermicompost bin, I take one of those and go into a bucket full of biochar and I put that much biochar in there. There's no particular amount. It just seems about right. When I feed my birds, I use that same scoop and I put that much biochar in a daily feed ration and I'm feeding them biochar. So this is putting it through all these different systems. Not really what I was going to talk about, but good question. And occasionally I will take one on the fly. Remember, if you want to ask a question during the live portion of this in the live stream comments, please put at least the first two or three words in all caps. That will make it more likely that I'll see it out of my one good eye instead of my blind eye. And I will actually star it so they can come back and answer it for you. Also, as you can see, there's a banner running across the screen from the video. If you're on the video, and it says, smash that like, subscribe, and hit notify, or Ika Mouse will be angry and her wrath will be fierce and terrible. I don't know if the Ika Mouse is here, but she'll probably be here eventually. And if you do not smash that like, she will know and you will face the wrath of the Ika Mouse. That's not something you want. All right, moving on. Um, I had somebody email me. And this is one of those things, like, I want to tell you that there's reason to be concerned economically, but I also don't want to lead you into bad decisions made out of fear. So when a person makes a decision out of fear, um, it usually is wrong. And when it's made out of irrational fear, even if it is, there is a reason to be afraid, but you go to an irrational level with it, you inevitably make a bad decision. So here's an example. You are walking down the road and you see a car coming directly at you. There is indeed a danger. But if you overreact, maybe you go off a cliff instead of just get out of the way. So you need to react commensurate to the level of danger. And you need to understand danger can increase across time and then your actions increase with the increasing danger. Another example would be afraid of a thing that's not dangerous at all at least at the current time. So you're walking down the road. It's a real steep cliff on one side. Next thing you know, there's a snake in front of you. You freak out, fall down the cliff and kill yourself or like fracture your leg or end up in a wheelchair for the rest of your life. Turns out the snake was corn snake or a bull snake or some other harmless animal. Now, honestly, versus going down the cliff, you probably would have been better off being bit by a rattlesnake because it's probably easier to fix a snake bit you unless you get anaphylactic shock from it, Right than it is to fix you if you go tumbling down a cliff and break your back. Crofab works 99% of the time. Broken backs usually, you know, 100% of the time result in being paralyzed at some level. 
So even if it was a deadly snake, if you use the word deadly, right, you probably would have been better off not overreacting to it. I think the financial situation we're in has a lot of people responding to a rattlesnake because rattlesnake is actually dangerous, but the rattlesnake is still 10 steps from you. It can't sprout wings and fly and bite you in the forehead, right? All you have to do is not step on the rattlesnake. So now that you see the rattlesnake, pay attention to it. If it moves, as you adjust, you adjust further. So the basic question here was, I plan on buying a house when the real estate market stabilizes. Okay, good luck with that. I think what you're better off doing is buying a house by being really smart about the way you shop. And when you find the right house, you buy the house, whether you think the market stabilized or not. Okay, so this person's got a significant amount of money that puts you in the power seat as a buyer. What you're looking for is a house that underperforms versus what's on the market. The way you sell a house and get top dollar for it is you make your house 1% better than the average thing on the market at your price point. And the way you buy a house is you look for a house that, that, that shows about 5% worse than the average house on the market at that price point. And I don't care if the market's good, bad, indifferent. That's always the formula. It will never change, right? So you need to always be looking, always be looking if you are in the market for a house because you don't know when you're going to find the opportunity and you want to keep the money as liquid as possible so that you have opportunity capital available to make the purchase. Um. Liberty Garden says rattlers will climb up a tree and strike at face level. Don't tree them. I hope you're making a joke because that's not true. I've, I've actually, I'm not gonna say, I'm not gonna say that rattlers never go up trees, but I've never seen one go up a tree willingly in my life, and I don't think you could chase one up a tree either. Now there are, there are places in the world I've been where when one walks through the jungle, one must be very careful for one's face, and those are various arboreal vipers. Anyway, um, yeah, so. This guy wanted to put all his money into gold and want to know what kind of gold to buy so his money would be safe until the market stabilized and he was ready to buy a house. Yeah, that's not what you want to do at all. I will say if you wanted to put some portion of it in gold because you want it liquid, right? So you need at least some money for earnest. They, they call it earnest capital or earnest cash. That means when you when you do a written offer on a property – you put up some money, 500 bucks, 1,000, 2,000, earnest money, and, and that basically is saying if I back out of a deal, you keep at least this much money, that gets the house off the market. So you have to have some small amount in that. If you were insistent on putting a significant portion, because it sounds like this guy's going to buy a house for like cash or go like super heavy down like 50%. So that's a lot of money, right? Even a, a modest house, that's a lot of money. If you insisted on putting it in gold, I would suggest that you use a brokerage account and use a gold ETF. Because if gold spikes and you want to harvest it, you can harvest the profit like that. And if you decide, I need to sell now and I need cash and I need to fund this purchase in the next week, the cash is available. You're not walking around with gold bars going to different stores asking for cash. So I prefer for the long-term holding of silver and gold precious metals, physical metal. But for something like this, if you're going to do it all, I want something instantly tradable, right? Um, Liberty Guard said it happened to him. He got bit in the face by a rattler. That's unusual. It's not normal. So the fact that something happened doesn't mean it's normal. Anyway, um, 
if you insisted on doing this, I would say put no more than 50% of the money in gold as a hedge. All eggs, one basket equals broken eggs, unhappy farmer. Gold is a volatile commodity. So is Bitcoin. You know, I don't have any issues with holding Bitcoin till the end of the earth. Nor do I have an issue holding gold until the end of the earth. Long-term appreciating assets is what they are in the giant view. I'm planning on buying a house. Six months from now, you could be ready to buy a house, and the value of your gold could have gone down by 25%. You now have to act. You're now trapped. This is what happened to banks, right? They bought the they bought the bonds with an interest rate of 1%, and now bonds you can get an interest rate of 4%. So they can, and if, when, they, when they have to sell that bond, they have to take a big loss on it. Right? Don't put yourself in that position. This idea that the dollar is going to die is and completely go away in in a short term is nonsense. And I hope that nothing I ever said indicated that the dollar losing its reserve status. Yes. Continued inflation. Yes. Well, I got to protect myself from inflation. So if we have another let's say we have a year with 10 percent inflation. And you have one hundred thousand dollars, it costs you ten thousand dollars in spending power. What do you think it's going to cost you to move $100,000 into physical gold and back out of physical gold with the with the, the spread on spot? And what are the odds that across one year, right when you need the money, that gold might not have dropped more than 10% or even 10%, but you're looking at a lo- an actual cost of moving in and out of that metal of 15 to 20%. You're way behind the 10% inflation if we have 10% inflation, which would be crippling inflation. So, but, but if I lose the 10% to inflation, we call that opportunity cost. There is a cost of maintaining capital in a liquid form so that it's available for the opportunity. There just is. If you insisted on diversifying into something outside the dollar and you're looking at a one to one and a half year time horizon, then I would say you probably take 20 to 25% of this money. And the place I would put it honestly, just based on math and current cycle, would be Bitcoin. That's nothing to do with my bullish position on Bitcoin long term. It's to do with we're one year from the next halving, and we know what happens every time there's a halving. So I would say you have right now, if you put money in the Bitcoin and you know you can wait at least one year, you're guaranteed a significant profit. I would say that. I would say that. With the caveat of I don't give financial advice, I'm a lot of licensed investment advisor, but if anybody here wants to bet 500 bucks right now that a position in Bitcoin one year from today won't be better than this price, I'll take that bet right now live. 500 bucks, witnesses, you got to pay me, I got to pay you. We'll have a third party hold the money. Yeah, right. I'll, I'll make that bet that Bitcoin will be at a profit compared to where it is today one year from now. April 18th, 2024, Bitcoin will be significant. I will say minimum 25% higher than it is right now. Anybody want that bet? Nobody wants it. All right. What would I do personally if I had a big chunk of capital and I'm looking to buy a house and I'm waiting for the market to stabilize? So what you mean is you're waiting for the price of housing to come down. That's what you mean. I would hold cash. I would hold cash. That's what I would do. The majority of it, I would hold in cash. Nobody wants to bet. 
Renegade Butcher says he'll bet he'll bet with me, not against me. Gooley, I'm not answering what goes out when the power goes out. I'm done with that. You're dead. All the people that ask me, what are you going to do about Bitcoin when the power, the whole grid goes down? Well, you are probably going to die because I'm prepared for the power to go out. I'm prepared to wait for it to come back on. Right. The people that say this, it's always, 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 unless he's making a joke because he knows everybody does it and he might be. And I'll give you a pass if you are. But people that say it like that, inevitably, you're the person telling somebody else that they need to have smoke alarms installed in their house while there's smoke coming out of the roof of yours. This whole you think you have a silver bullet objection to Bitcoin. Because the power could go out, the Internet could go down. And so your bank account is worthless. Your income from your job is worthless. Your credit cards are worthless. Your ability to pay your bills is gone. And you probably don't have enough food the last three weeks or you wouldn't be asking me a question like that. So you're going to die. That's what's going to happen. And uh, Ika Mouse is here. I told you guys she's mad. 43 likes, 81 watching. You better get on it. Get get those likes up there. And uh, I don't know, dude, he's he's on now about how he has some Bitcoin. You know what it reminds me of when people do this? You, 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 you know what what I, I think of when someone does this? They shit on Bitcoin. Then they come back and go, but I have some Bitcoin. It's like, going, I know I just told five racist jokes, but I'm not a racist because I have a black friend. That's how, I'm, I'm pretty much done with all of this crap. It's crap. You, you, the, the person that tells you this. They are never prepared, even if they claim to be. Anyway, moving on. Um, I would hold cash right now. Does that mean I would just hold cash no matter what happens? If the central bank starts singling more bailouts or we have more progress in the the loss of the reserve status of dollar, might I hedge some more of that money in other assets? Yeah. Most of my free capital right now, other than capital, it's, and this is what this would be, Capital allocated to spend within the next 12 months. Most of my free capital gets sweeped into Bitcoin. If it's not in Bitcoin, it's in silver or it's in gold or it's in real estate, right? Or it's in investments in more conventional, traditional investments. But if I'm going to spend cash 12 months or less, it's going to be in cash. Majority of the allocation is going to be in cash. Next up, um, I found this really interesting. And... I uh, I want to share this with you right now. This is a, a video that was sent to me by somebody. I don't remember who. But I do know this person has a tendency to send me a video or something like this or an article, ask me a question, and the thing that they sent doesn't really fit the question. But I'll try to fit both of them here. But we're going to talk – we're going to hear – what you're about to hear right now is off a TikTok video, and it's about – um pesticide use in the United States, and it's clearly a, a British uh, organization put the video out. In uh, the UK and the US when it comes to pesticide, what's the difference between uh, the UK and the US when it comes to pesticide standards? So American fruit and veg in general is allowed to contain larger amounts of more toxic pesticides than their UK equivalents. American farmers use almost 10 times more kilos of pesticides per hectare than we do, and many of those chemicals are banned here. If we drill down into what's called highly hazardous pesticides, because they are particularly harmful to human health, the U.S. authorizes 50 percent more highly hazardous pesticides in the U.K. 
and which of these pesticides do you think we should be most worried about? So permethrin, for example, is a known human carcinogen, so it has the capacity to cause cancer. And there's chlorpyrifos, which is a particularly nasty insecticide, which has very strong links to um, negatively affecting children's brain development. There's also a big difference when it comes to the amount of pesticide residues allowed in food. So, for example, there's an insecticide called malathion, which is a known human carcinogen. American apples are allowed to contain 400 times the amount of malathion than a UK apple. Similarly, American grapes are allowed to contain a thousand times the amount of an insecticide called propagite than UK grapes. And propagite is a known human carcinogen and also a developmental or reproductive toxin. So if you wash it well, doesn't that get rid of it? I'm afraid not. And many of these pesticides are systemic, which means they're taken into the body of the plant. So while um, washing an apple, for example, will remove some of the pesticides on the outside. So it's definitely good practice. It, it won't remove all of it. If this so there's a few things in this that I, I want to talk about. Um, one, the question was more to the effect of how far will pesticides travel through our soil layer? So that we soak the ground with all this pesticide. Does your neighbor's pesticide get onto your property? If you have extensive runoff and you're running off across the property, you're going to get significant pesticide drift. It can be done in the air and it can be done across uh, across the, the, the top of the soil uh, when you have runoff or affluent runoff right? or irrigation runoff will take it to. If you're talking about actually moving through the soil, um, then, you know, that's by the very nature of things going to be highly limited how mobile it's going to be. So I'm not really worried about that. Uh, but drift is something that's significantly worrying. What's more interesting to me in this video is how much more pesticide we use than they do in the UK or the EU. And it's not like their food is like super healthy and completely non-toxic organic or anything either. They use some pretty hazardous, icky shit as well, you know. Um, the, the amount is kind of insane, and it, it makes you wonder if it's not at least a piece of why we have all of these health problems going rampant today. As much as I am on the... Uh, carnivore ketivore diet and I do think it is a better way for most people to live I do have to look back and say okay so let's look at my grandmother's generation and my father's and uncle's generation and look at the food that they eat, ate and they relied heavily on inexpensive starches in adjunct to meat so a typical meal my grandmother might have made would have been something like uh, beef with you know green beans, uh, broccoli with cheese on it, and potatoes. And I don't mean broccoli and cheese potato casserole, like like a roasted potato or a fried potato, usually fried in like lard or bacon fat or chicken fat was what you would fry potatoes in. And most of that would be food that we, the beef we would have bought, everything else we would have raised in our own garden. Nobody was fat. Nobody was, I mean, I'm thinking back to when I was a kid, everybody I knew ate like this. I'm not saying there were no fat people, but in general, nobody was just in general fat. Like when there was a fat person, you knew who the fat person was. And the fat person was usually hogging down like lots of pies and tasty cakes or something like that, being 
Pennsylvania, what have you, you know, tasty cakes were a big thing back in the 80s. And it was usually food like that that made people fat and, and like a, an eating problem. But people just ate, you know, three squares a day. They ate bacon and eggs for most days for breakfast. They ate something like a sandwich, which had bread in it for lunch. And then they ate a, a typical meal that you would think of for dinner. You know, two sides and a meat. And one of the sides was probably a starch. They ate a lot less wheat and grain and soy than we eat today. But one thing I know they were consuming less of, because less of it was used, is pesticides. Now, there's another thing in this. There's the term pesticide, and pesticide can be used specifically or generically, right? So there's pesticide, and I prefer to use it specifically. So to me, a pesticide is one of the sides of the side cocktails, the, the bio side cocktails, that's used to kill insects. If it's used to kill insects, I call it a pesticide. If it's used to kill other plants and weeds, I call that an herbicide. But some people refer to it all as pesticide. The herbicides are another issue. And the herbicides are only able to be used because they genetically modify the plant so that I can spray an herbicide on the plant. Now, there are some herbicides that are used in certain applications that the plant is not genetically modified, the herbicide simply doesn't affect that particular type of plant. So I can't think of what the herbicide is, but there's an herbicide used on plants like corn and other members of the grass family, so sorghum, etc. And it's an herbicide that specifically only affects broadleaf weeds. So I don't need to genetically modify a grass family plant. And, you know, grasses can grow as weeds, but big plants like corn, etc. will outcompete those grasses. So they'll use that herbicide without a GMO. But both of them are applications of herbicide. And herbicide, by the very way that it is applied, becomes systemic and goes in the plant. So we're consuming herbicides and pesticides in nutrient-deficient food. Plus, we're eating industrial oils because that is, uh, th that is um, amenoparalysis, paralysis, I can't read it, or grazon. Faith says, as far as the, the grass, that sounds right. Amino pyrolid. Yeah, amino pyrolid. Uh, we're eating all this shit. And as much as I think we're better off eating a high fat, moderate protein, low carb diet, and I think that's species appropriate for humans. I can't deny what I just told you about the past. And I think many of us look back and we think about at least at dinner, there was always a starch on the plate and you went to the beach and you didn't see people's asses rolling out of their bikinis, not just because their bikinis were little, but because the ass was so big. Right. I, I think we can all think back to, to you know, eating like that in if, if you're as old as me anyway. Right. If you're old fart like me being in school. And, and, and you know, like our once a month our lunch at the, at the high school, and it was really good for what it was, was macaroni and cheese, okay? Now, this wasn't an everyday thing, but mac and cheese, we're full on carb right here, right? But you got a roll, this big yeasty roll. And if you've ever been to like uh, Texas Roadhouse, they were kind of like that, but more muffin shaped. They were like three times as big. An extra roll was a dime, but you could only buy one extra roll. So if you had a buddy who wasn't going to buy it, you were like, hey, here's a dime. And you might sit down with some of the guys would be sitting down. Football players would always sit down with like four rolls and this big giant plate of mac and cheese. 
You look around a class, one fat kid in the whole school, his name was Jason. I remember his name. When I say the whole school, I mean when I was a senior, this guy was a junior, and he was the fat kid in school. Down in ninth grade, about, I think we had about 400 students to the grade in my senior year because they merged another high school in with us. So like 1,200 people, I remember one fat guy. Everybody ate bread. I got to believe that there is some level of all this toxicity. And the other thing, we, we did eat some, but we ate nowhere near the amount of it is these seed oils. And again, I said this yesterday, but if you want to know how bad it is, just go look at what you have to do to canola or cotton to produce what they call a food-grade oil out of it. And that process is literally disgusting. And it doesn't make any sense that we're supposed to eat large amounts of this stuff. And then understand that those oils are rife with these pesticides and herbicides, too. So... Mainly, if I'm worried about pesticides off neighboring property, I want to use good earthworks and I want to use riparian biofiltration. So if I'm worried about air drift, I want really tall non-food trees, something like poplar or I can't remember what they're called. They look like pine trees, but they grow really tall and narrow, like shitloads of those to block that wind. Across the surface, I want to use swales. And I want to go through a multi-swale system if it's a large property. And I want to plant mostly things that are like fodder trees. I mean, yeah, animals. I'm not real happy about that. But I would be more looking to things that are going to be used for fuel, fuels and fibers. I'm not real worried about it in there. And I want to absorb that before it has time to make its way across the ground onto my property. That, that's where I'm coming at with that. Uh, next up, this was... Um, Actually, a really cool email that I got. I want to pull it up. I don't usually read. I usually wing it, but I want to read this because it was from a listener named Aaron. And Aaron said, so here's a cool thing that happened because of Jack's podcast. While listening to episode 3269, I thought, I think I know that guy. I looked Andy McCann up on Facebook, and I was right. We went to Georgia Tech together, and I lived in his fraternity house for a summer, even have pictures to prove it. And then I connected on Facebook and chatted for a while, catching up. I asked if he knew other friends of ours who were also listeners of TSP. He didn't. But then again, he didn't know that I was. It occurred to us that it would be amazing to be able to connect with local folks who are also TSP followers and are trying out various techniques that Jack teaches. Has there been any thought of doing this at TSP? I belong to a freedom cell in my area. I like these people, but they are a bit more woo-hoo and aren't necessarily implementing the practical tactics that Jack teaches. So I think that there would not be a competition with Freedom Cells, just a thought. I would love to be able to find and connect with local TSP chapters. Okay, so there are people, and they generally use Meetup. And I mean like the Meetup, the you know the, the website meetup.com. And they... They use that as their way of connecting with each other, and they call them TSP meetups. Now, how many? I don't know. Um, I'm kind of a big believer that some things I should not stick my fingers in. Now, if people want me to make it known that this is being done, that I can do. But I'll tell you that quite a few years ago, when I was still living in Arlington, it came to my attention that there was a TSP meetup group that met at a local restaurant certain day of the week for breakfast. 
And I decided I should, it's like straight in my backyard, I should go. And I did go, and it was a great experience, but it also left me with the following. I should get out of here, and I shouldn't come back. Now, why would I do that? Because the whole point of a meetup group like that is for you guys to get together. And, you know, visiting one once and saying, hey, here I am, nice to meet you guys, you know, picking up the coffee tab or whatever. Sure. If it's a bar, picking up the beer tab, whatever. Yeah. But on a regular basis, I need to stay out of that because then it becomes about me. And if you guys are going to do this, what I would hope is that you get together and my show just means that there's a commonality in your life that means that you guys are going to make a good network. And that's it. And it should be all about you and what you're doing and who you're doing it with and organizing get shit done weekends or perma blitzes or whatever it is. So I've kind of stayed out of it. But, you know, if you go to meetup.com and search for the survival podcast or TSPC or something like that, you might find something in your area. You could certainly start something in your area. I would definitely say that, like, getting on our social media, especially if you're in a major market, so Dallas, Fort Worth, ton of listeners here. Houston, ton of listeners. Uh, Atlanta, I know we have a lot of listeners. Tennessee, we have a ton of listeners, but a lot of them are rural. Uh, but we have in most large metro areas with just our number of people, there is a significant, you know, few hundred at least people near you, if you're in one of those markets, that are daily listeners to the show that may make that happen. I'd love to see it. I also try to always keep my ego in check. And, you know, we used to say in the military, know my pay grade. And I am very blessed to have a large audience. And I'm very blessed to have a 15-year-old podcast that makes me a living. And I never look that gift horse in the mouth ever. And I always do my best for you guys. But also, no, I ain't that big. I ain't that important. I, I don't get involved in politics, one, because I don't believe in But two, even if I did, I know I'm not going to move the needle. You know, if people with $50 million salaries on major networks don't move the political needle in an election, Jack Spirico ain't going to move the needle. So when it comes to all these peripheral side things, these side projects, these sub-communities, I'll do what I can to get them off the ground and, like, get some lift in it, and then people get involved, and I get out of the way. And if you look at, for instance, the way we run the Telegram group, I pop in from time to time, but mostly I post my stuff to the channel and it gets duplicated over there, and I stay out of everybody's way. Um, Zello isn't what it used to be, but at one point, the Survival Podcast Zello channel was the most active channel on the entire Zello network. I barely showed up because it's not about me. So I would love to see more effort put into local TSP chapters, support groups, whatever, and I'm open to how can I help how can I, what can I do to enable it? And one might just be, maybe I add a page called meetups to the website and anybody that sets a meetup group up, whether it's on meetup or through some other channel, you can have it listed on that. That sounds like a lot of work if it takes off. So I'm not sure. Um, but maybe somebody would help with it or something like that. Or maybe somebody would maintain it and I would just point to it or something like TSPmeetups.com or something like that. I just don't want 
Uh, and, and Tom says, cough, discord, cough, right? <coughs> discord. <laughs> yeah, discord would be another great place to connect. Yeah, discord. Discord, the discord group actually got started by somebody, and then I was told about it. And then I kind of pushed it a little bit, right? Uh, but definitely, I would love to get you guys more connected with each other. And I also want to keep my big old ego head out of it to a degree. Like, it can't be about me. It's got to be about you guys or it won't work, right? Because you're not going to all get together and talk about what a great guy Jack is. I'd, I'd love that to be the case. But you'll probably get together. Hey, the jerk brought us together. Order a coffee or a beer and talk about your own life, right? So if I can enable that, I will do so. Um, there has been some stuff like that before. There's been, like, state-specific Facebook groups and stuff like that. I don't know. I think real world actually might be a lot more powerful, even with a lot less people. If you can get a meetup group of four or five people that hang out together a couple times a month, you have real world relationships that really matter. Uh, next up, I want to talk to you about sous vide. And what I'm going to bring up for you right now is I'm going to bring up the item of the day. I'm going to do the item of the day early. Um, and I'm going to do that because the item of the day is the same as yesterday, and it's what I want to talk about next, which is sous vide. So I won't say much about this. I'll just say the Insta AccuView Slim Sous Vide Precision Cooker is still on sale at 20% off. It says it's a deal. I don't know how long that limited time deal is going to last, but it's the same one yesterday. And you can always help us out by doing your online shopping at tspaz.com. What I try to do when I do write-ups for products at tspaz, though, is make them useful to you, even if you're not going to buy the thing or you already own the thing. I try to provide information. If it's a food thing, I do recipes, techniques, other ways it can be used. If it's a gardening thing and it's a fertility aid, I try to educate you on to why it's a good product, not just so you'll buy it, but because if you understand that, maybe you can select a different product that's better for you, but you understand what you're looking for. So I try to make them educational. So with sous vide, one of the things I've been told, you know, sous vide's fine, Jack, but, you know, what it does is it makes a really great steak. And the actual reality is it does a lot more than just make a really great steak. One thing you can do with sous vide is you can use it as a yogurt maker. So what sous vide actually does is it brings water to a very specific temperature. And I don't mean like between 150 and 160 or 130 and 140. I mean 134 and a half degrees. I mean whatever temperature you want. So if you heat water to a held temperature, now with yogurt, generally you don't want the thing under the water and you have to be deep enough to get the circulator in. So you might put something in to act as like a shelf to put your jars on. So they're just up, you know, up to their rims with water around them. But if you want to, you know, make your yogurt at 110 degrees, when that water hits 110, it can sit there and run for days if it needs to. And it will hold 110 degrees. So it's a great yogurt maker. And I never even thought of that till I had somebody ask me for my recommendation on a yogurt maker. I'm like, well, a yogurt maker makes yogurt. And it doesn't do anything else. I hate unitaskers. Get a sous vide circulator and here's what I would do. And the person wrote me back and said, holy shit, I already have one. I never thought of it. So you can make yogurt. You can make cheese. Cheese kind of uses the same thing. Again, we're holding water at a certain temperature. We take a smaller container. We fill it with our milk. The outer container we fill with water. And then we heat to whatever temperature we want to scald the milk at. 
If this is a hard-pressed cheese, it's probably a lower temperature. It's a quick farm cheese. I think you're 160, something like that, for like something you can use vinegar as rennet for. Um, I have a link in that one where you can go on YouTube and see how to make a quick farm cheese using sous vide. It works really well. Egg bites. Everybody loves the egg bites, man, right, from Starbucks. They're ridiculously expensive. You can make your own egg bites with anything that you want in them using sous vide. I personally prefer chaffles to an egg bite. Uh, I think they got some crunch to them. Little holes are nice and all. Chaffles are something made with egg and cheese and other things on a small waffle iron. Uh, but if you like egg bites, you can definitely make egg bites. Boil eggs. One of the most underutilized, beautiful things about sous vide is the ability to make an egg and get your yolk exactly the way you want it. You want that perfect ramen noodle soft-boiled yolk that when you cut the egg, it just barely oozes out of there. You can do that. You want it all the way through. You can do that. You want it anywhere in the middle. You want like it's solid, but it's orange. It doesn't go yellow. It's like just barely solid. You might have to play with your machine and your eggs and do a run or two test and do a couple eggs at a time and figure out what is your temperature for how long. Once you have that down, you can, like, I have a big Lexan thing. I could put four dozen eggs in there if I want to. I, I've never done it, but I can tell you just by thinking spatially in my head, easily four dozen eggs in there. Boom. And you put the eggs right in the water that you're circulating because they're in a shell. And you set your time and your temperature. And when it's done, you take your eggs out, give them a cool water bath to stop the process, and you will have perfect eggs. So boiling eggs. Creme brulee. One of the coolest desserts. Chefy thing, you know, creme brulee. Jack, your keto. Hey, you know what you can do? You can make creme brulee and the ingredients are such that the only thing in it that's actually a carbohydrate is sugar. You can replace that with Lakanto. Didn't you hear the, the sugar from that is going to give you cancer and strokes and heart attacks and you're going to die? No, you're not. Listen to Kenberry's video on it. Don't eat it every day. Don't eat it every meal. But if you want an occasional badass, delicious, luxury, chefy treat, I have a link for you on how to make creme brulee. You make it in a jar. You mix the mix up. You set it in the water. You set the temperature, and it ends up set perfectly. And then you sprinkle a little of your sugar or your Lakanto sugar substitute on the top, hit it with a torch, and, and glaze it over. Outstanding. How about steaks but prepped in advance? And I, what I'm going to add to it, the last item that I have on this list, defrosting meats, because it kind of works the same way. And K-Bonk's asking a question. You're going to get an answer right now um, on this one. Can you go from the freezer to sous vide directly? Yes, and this is exactly what I do. I will take some of my steaks when they come in, and I will season them exactly as I want them. Salt, pepper, garlic would be one very classic example of that. Or maybe something more. I'll use some rosemary and thyme and uh, fennel seed that's ground. And I'll go more like to an Italian seasoning. And then I'll do that with something like, that's what we're doing tonight. We're going to do flat iron steaks seasoned that way with cauliflower rice with basil pesto. Fantastic way to go. And I will season that steak. I will put it in a chamber vac seal bag. Or if you just have a regular vacuum sealer, that'll work too. Vacuum seal it. Label it. So date and what it is and what it's seasoned with. Throw it in the freezer. We forgot to take stuff out for dinner tonight. No problem. I got it into the freezer, and you grab your two steaks. Yep, 
They're a season the way I want. Throw them in the sous vide circulator, set the temperature, give it an extra half hour. Half hour or less, it will be fully thawed and it will cook perfectly. And I will add to that defrosting meats that you're going to cook some other way, but you want to accelerate the defrost. Now, you might think that the way you do that is you set the temperature nice and high. OK, um, if you set the temperature high, you're going to start cooking it. Now, if you're going to cook it anyway, if you got to take it pre pre seasoned steak out of the freezer. You're cooking. You go ahead and set the temperature you want it to finish at 135 degrees, whatever it is for you. If you just want to defrost it, you set the temperature as low as it'll go with the one I'm reviewing today. And with the um, the ANOVA, you can set it down to like 40 degrees. But, you know, you set it for 40, 50, 70 degrees, whatever, room temperature. What actually defrosts the meat is the moving water that's above freezing. So if you take a steak and you put it on a countertop, there's a couple different ways to speed up your, your defrosting. And it takes four hours to fully thaw. If you take that same steak and take something like a carbon steel skillet and set it in that skillet, because the steel in the skillet pulls the cold away from the meat, it'll cut the thaw time about in half. Right? And this is sitting in a room where it's 70 degrees. But if you put it in a, in a circulating thing of water at 45 degrees, It'll defrost in about 30 minutes because that water is continuously pulling the cold from all sides. And even though you have it on a low setting, that sous vide circulator won't let that temperature come down below that. Now, there's a thing that you can do. There's a thing that you can do if you don't have a sous vide machine that's very cheap. And that's how I fixed one of my sous vide circulars. So my ANOVA, I would notice that the temperature was all not quite right. Nothing seemed right. It just didn't. It seemed like it fluctuated a lot really fast. And what ended up happening is the circulator itself stopped circulating, but the heater element didn't fail. I went on Amazon and I searched for nano fish tank pump. And I found a little water pump about this big, you know, so uh, a couple inches in size for $9.99. I bought it. And if I want to use both circulators, I take the, the Nova and that one, I put the little pump in and it circulates the water and then the cycling of the temperature works. So I have also tried, well, if it's circulating water, I've taken water, sink temperature water, countertop, something that needs to be thawed, throw that little $10 pump in there and it does a really good job of uh, defrosting meat. So there's other ways to do that. And it's mainly about that circulation. And if you think about it, like if you ever go to like, uh, a wine shop or something, you know, a nice wine shop. And they say, would you like your bottle chilled in 10 minutes while you shop? Right. That's what they use is circulation of ch ice chilled water to get that circulation, uh, to get that, that bottle temperature down a lot faster. All right. Moving on from that topic. So I am, I am starring all of your questions, guys, all of your questions and Gooley. I got your super chat in there. I'm going to give you credit for it after I gave you shit. Just wait till the end and we come back to you. Anyway, um, somebody sent me this article. And I read the article. And I was like, I think a redneck duck farmer talked about this happening like three years ago. So here's the title of the article. It's on Marketplace. 
and it's another small college closes as declining enrollment and a hot job market bite by Stephanie Hughes, who probably has a worthless degree and still owes a ton of money in student debt and wants you to pay it off for her, by the way. But Cardinal Stritch University, a suburban Milwaukee, will close next month after more than 85 years. So at least a half dozen private nonprofit, nonprofit colleges have announced plans to close over the past year or so. It's actually a lot more than that, Stephanie. It's a lot more than a half, half a dozen. It's about half a dozen this year. I'm paying attention to this. Among the factors to blame is an overall declining college enrollment nationwide. There are more than a, there are more than a million fewer undergraduates now than there were in 2019. And she goes on. The thing that I find most interesting about this article is that she really does hit something dead on. Two things. One, the declining enrollments are not new, that they've been on this path for a while. You're about to see how long they've been on this path. Uh, but she also does a good job of pointing out something that I pointed out in this article here, the coming economic crash part three post-secondary education. And that is that all of these little colleges, these colleges that have, you know, a few thousand to 10 to 20,000 students and less. So anywhere from 2,000 students to 20,000 students, these little private universities all over the country are anchor institutional industries in small towns and in small town areas. And the way I described it in my article was this. Um, hold on real quick here. Actually, I want to go ahead and cover this, per, this, this first. Just college enrollments as a whole. When we look at a college enrollment over the last 10 years, now this article is three years old at this point, and this trend's continued, by the way. The data is both clear and ugly. Now in an attempt at misdirection, many are blaming big old scary COVID for this. Once again, COVID is accelerating this trend, but it was in motion already. This article documents the fact that by December 2019, before any new, anyone knew what COVID was, college enrollments have declined for eight consecutive years. Ask any investor uh, to put their money into a company or a sector that has declined for eight years in a row. Uh, what would they give you as an answer? It would be no. They wouldn't bother an explanation, assuming that if you needed an explanation, you'd not understand it anyway. So what you're looking at, if you're watching the live stream is university and college enrollment 2008 to 2019. And you can see that enrollments peaked in 2010, 2011 enrollment period. And it is a steady declining line. It is a steady declining line between 2011 and 2019. I will tell you that since I put this article out three years ago, this trend has only continued and it's continued at about the same rate. So that line just continued. If it went out to about there, it would be right about where October 2022 is in the archives. That's where that line would go. So that's 11 years, 11 years. If you were an investor and I was coming to you, oh, I did it again. Let me get it back up there. All right. So, damn it. <laughs> All right. So you can see the graph now. I left it off the screen. So um, undergraduate enrollment in universities has been in steady decline for 11 years. The other thing you need to know is that there's a larger number of students not graduating, not completing. the. the so of 100 that go in, 
let's say in the past, you know, 100 go in, 80 end up completing the degree path. So that number is more like 72 now. And it's actually lower than that. I'm just giving you a relative kind of thing because I didn't look up the, the stats this morning, but it's something like that. So not only are less going in, a lower percentage of the goes that go in are completing it. The other problem, though, is these towns. And let me find this. Okay. The cascade effect is what I call this segment of the article. As before, this ties back to Mega Trend 1, which is real estate. Have you ever been driving cross-country and noticed a small town on your map or GPS and figured, okay, we can stop there? Driven into this town and thought, wow, this place ain't so small. They even have an Olive Garden and a Costco. Then sort of wondered, what does this place have going on? Why is it so developed? Then right as you pass through the center, there it is, a sizable university, the University of Somewhereland. Do you realize there are thousands of these types of universities all over our nation? That if that school goes under, so does the entire town? That even if that school cuts back student headcount by 50% and shuts a few buildings, it can literally collapse most of the town? Any idea how many local folks own real estate they rent to students? How many businesses can't survive without students bought in fresh each cycle? Let me put it this way. Do you remember the fallout as a few military bases closed in the 80s and 90s? How little towns were devastated by it. Each of these universities has the economic impact of small military installations in many of these communities. Instead of half a dozen closures, what do hundreds look like at a national scale? And then it talks about how many of these professors that live in these these little small towns, they say, oh, I love the small town character. Right. I love the small cat. Like, no, they don't. No, they don't. The reason they're not teaching at Harvard, Harvard didn't offer them a job. The reason they're not at UPenn or UMass or even like Texas State or something like that. One of these larger universities is that's not who offered them a job. They got a job working for the University of South Sheboyganville. And then they pretend that I have chosen to wear my tweed jacket and live in this small hamlet. Right. They're only there because they have a good paying job that's not that hard to do. What happens when they don't have that job anymore? How dedicated are they to that little small hamlet, that little town, right? They're not. So you have an exodus of that population when that college collapses. If you read this article in full that I have linked in the show notes today by Stephanie Hughes, you will see this is exactly what she's talking about. Now, three years later, the impact, the closure of these schools, or exactly what I said, even the downsizing to half the student body is having. This is only going to continue. It is absolutely going to continue. It is not going away. I wish I could tell you that it's going away, but it's not. And it's going to get worse. And what you're going to have is, I'm telling you right now, if you look at a little town and it's got a college in it, and that college is a significant amount of that town's gross domestic product, go look at the enrollment in that school. If that enrollment is in a sustained decline, and it probably is, that college probably won't be there for but another year, two, three, five tops. What is going to happen? And I talk about this in my article. Again, I have links to both of them in the show notes. I invite you to read them if you never did before. 
the larger schools with the name brand recognition are moving more and more to online education. And I believe they will even go to some hybrid models. There are certain courses and coursework that really do lend themselves well to a true university campus situation where you need labs and partners and all that stuff. Even those degree paths probably have 50 to 70% of the coursework could be completed from the comfort of your own home at a fraction of the cost. When these larger colleges can start taking students that don't have to use university resources on campus, they will cut tuition. They will create hybrid paths as well, like do 70% of your work online after completing it, then do your, you know, your final push on campus with your labs and shit like that. This type of thing is coming. On top of it, there's all these boot camps and other pathways to, to education. Uh, there's private educational pathways that aren't necessarily universities, but they stand in for them. And employers are getting to the point where I don't need another person with a gender studies degree. This is one of the biggest economic demographic bombs on the planet right now, but specifically in the Western cultures and specifically in the United States. And no one is talking about this. This is an economic disruption at an unparalleled level. This is a trillion dollar industry that is about to go tits up. Now, when I say that, people think what I'm saying is that all the universities are going away. I'm not. What I'm saying is the mega industry is dead. The mega industry is dead. From the 1970s back, almost no one that went to college paid much for it. And they didn't take loans to go. From the late 40s to the 70s, we had a demographic that started going to college that was outside of the norm. They were veterans. GI Bill, Army College Fund, that type of thing. Come back from the war, they can get into school. The way they got into school, they had money. The colleges, understanding they had money, if the person had the academics to even get in by the skin of their teeth, they let anybody in that they had room for because they had money. How did everybody else go to school? Universities were almost, almost exclusively funded by scholarships that came from alumni. And less than 50% of people ever went in the door of a college for one class. And about 30% of people had degrees eventually. So if I looked at 10 people, three have degrees, seven do not. And then the reality was, even among those, the people that were degree professionals that were pursuing careers, that weren't like semi-wealthy people who went to college for something to do, you were looking at about, in any... Any company, 10, 15, 20% tops had degrees. And those people would end up in upper management positions eventually. Now, at the same time, you had people that would come in as an errand boy and end up a, a president of a department by the time they retired and be there for, for 50 years. That started to wane as more of these degree professionals came in. But what ended up happening was the value of degree, every time there was a higher percentage of people with degrees, the value of the degree went down while the cost of the degree was going up. And that really took off from the 70s till now. With the big marketing push during the Reagan years of, guess what? 
Every child deserves a college education. Everybody should go to college. This is one of the biggest lies ever sold to America. The two biggest lies that Reagan, three biggest lies Reagan sold to America. I'm not raising taxes because he brought you the largest tax increase in the history of the United States. They called it saving Social Security. That marijuana was an extremely dangerous drug. That's nonsensical. In fact, Reagan's exact words, one of the most dangerous drugs in the world, marijuana. Okay. Um, but this last one is that every college, everybody should go to college. This is not, do we need welders? Do some welders weld shit together like to hold airplanes together? So do, do, do you need a college degree to become a certified welder and weld shit together on an airplane? Do we want stupid people doing that job? So even people that could get into college, if that's your path, you have no need to go to college. Why? So we sold this lie. And then the, the number of people with degrees or partial degrees exploded. So now I'm an employer. You come to me. Well, I have a degree. So what? So do the last 800 people that walked in the door. I don't care. Let's talk about your life and your experience. And you don't know shit. Get out of here. Right? Or we'll let you schlep coffee for a month. If you survive, maybe you'll get a better job. I don't care you have a degree. doesn't matter because everybody has one. You go back 1965, I've got a degree in business. I'm interested as an employer. You're going to be, you know, one of one in 10 people I see are going to be you. You, you have, you, you, you interest me. Right. And so at the same time, they're funding all this education with student loans and they just keep increasing the amount people can borrow with no plan to pay it back whatsoever. So the universities go, Oh, I got an idea. Let's raise our tuition. And everybody sits around the board table the first time this conversation. Goes, wait, 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 what's going to do with enrollment? Oh, won't do anything. Well, why not? Well, like 80% of our students now take loans. They don't have any idea how they're going to pay it back. Well, what do we want to raise tuition for? We need to give all the professors raises. We need to give ourselves raises because administrators, we're the ones that really keep things going around here. But we need a new wing. We need a library. We need a whatever. We need a quad redesign, whatever. Just threw money at everything. And every time... They got to the point where like, hey, we're kind of getting heavy on debt here. We need to refinance. Just raise tuition again. And enrollments just kept coming all the way up to 2012. And it's just another cycle that has run itself out. And it's starting to unwind. And it is an industry that is so large that if it cuts itself by half, it's an economic disaster. But the places where... Everything else just kind of recombobulates around it because it's not a necessary thing. We don't need 70% of high school graduates going on to college. We don't need that. We don't need 50% of people to have college degrees. We don't need it. When we stop having it, nothing intrinsically bad occurs. It's all a lie anyway. The people that don't have the debt, it's better for them. But the town, the town that has existed for 80 years because the university of somewhere is right downtown in the middle of this little town. And the bars make their living off of students. The little stores make their living off of students. The landlords make their money off students. And that new group every year, new freshman class, departing senior class every year keeps new energy, blood and money coming into that town. And when you pull it, it's like pulling the, the, the plug at the bottom of a bathtub. 
pretty soon you're going to see a circle of the drain and all the bubbles and dirt go down the drain and the tub's empty. That is about to happen at a broad scale. It's been coming. And if you go look at the enrollment data, it is one of the ugliest pictures you will ever see if you happen to be vested in that industry. The problem is a lot of people that think they're not vested in that industry. Where do you live? Where do you live? And if you live somewhere like next to state college or something like that, it probably won't have that big an effect on you. The, the big colleges will gain from this. As the small colleges close and there's less seats, more move into the big colleges. But the small colleges, the mid-sized colleges, et cetera, are the ones that are in deep duck shit over this. Absolute deep duck shit. And so if you live in one of those towns, you're vested in this trillion dollar industry that's about to be cut in half over the next decade. And I hate to, to quote the Emperor Palpatine, but it is all happening as I have foreseen it. Uh, it's one of those another ones. I don't want to be right, but I am. All right. So then I had another question about biochar. So the biochar question was, hey, I found some biochar local to me. It's the only economically viable alternative I have. Don't want to make his own for whatever reason. And uh, but it's it's naked char doesn't have any it's not been composted. It's not been charged up with compost tea. What do I do? OK, well, and he says, I don't have any compost. All right. So there's a couple ways to handle this. One, I would suggest that there's compost everywhere. And I know you might say, I don't have the time to make compost and get it because it sounds like what he wants. He wants to use it in his garden this year. Right. It's. If, you, if you're gardening, you probably have some compost. So say your compost was already completed, you can mix your biochar in compost, leave it for about three weeks and use it. This guy sounds like he doesn't even have any compost, though. And it sounds like he's smart enough to know that I probably don't want to go buy compost from a box store. It's low-quality shit, right? Whether there's persistent herbicide involved or not, it's low-quality shit. And I think... Paul Wheaton's fear of herbicide is a little overblown, but legitimate. I think it is actually more the case that it's shitty compost that doesn't have much going on as far as biology is the real problem. And it's usually because it's made at a mass scale, it gets too hot, it has a high prevalence of cyanobacteria in it. And that's why you'll see things like brassias do really well and things like nightshades like peppers and tomatoes look like shit. And that corrects over time. But, yeah, you probably don't want to use that to charge up your biochar. I would get on next door and I would say, I need some compost. Does anybody here make compost? I need about a wheelbarrow's full and I'm willing to buy it. Bet you some lady that makes compost in her backyard has some. The other thing you can do is even buy a smaller amount of it and make compost tea, which is just basically you take something like a paint strainer bag and put some compost in it and stick that in water and take an air, aquarium air pump with some air stones and run it for 48 hours and get that air oxygen in there and then inoculate your biochar with compost tea. I would suggest that if you can't do that, that you just don't use biochar in your garden this cycle and you start composting and you start pitching biochar into your compost and as that completes you go ahead and move it over there renegade says could you charge it with rabbit poop tea i don't know 
I don't, that's one. I've never kept rabbits. I know rabbit manure is a cool manure, meaning you can go straight out of the soil with it, and you probably should. It also composts well and all. But if you had a lot of rabbit poop, I would just say if you mixed rabbit poop and biochar and set it aside and let it start to break down, that would do the thing as well. But I don't know about making rabbit poop tea. I, I've never been big on manure tea. I've been big on compost tea. So um, that would be another way. Or if you find a really good supplier of a compost tea concentrate, um, Garrett juice is a good one. But if you're worried about the biological activity, you need to know that, that it was made very recently because these organisms inside a liquid especially begin to die off pretty quick. Um, Fox Farm soils make pretty good compost tea. They're very high in organic matter or minerals and other things, and you can pitch other things like uh, beneficial bacteria and fungal organisms into it, and then you can make compost tea with that. But what I would do if you're in this position myself is at minimum start a worm bin, feed your worms every day, get your supply of biochar and add it, and then use small amounts of worm castings in your garden across time. But your last-ditch option is don't use it this season, but put it in this fall. It takes about six months in the soil before biochar kind of has stopped taking and starts giving back. So another way would be for how much you want to add Run your garden season as normal this year. Acquire the biochar. Make the biochar during the season. Apply it to your garden at the end of the season. Mulch over it. Throw some fertility down, et cetera, like you normally do, and then plant in that spring. And you're, you're, you're probably good by then as well because you've had enough time with soil contact for that to take care of itself. So. That's what I would do. Ah, somebody emailed me and said, moving as a prepper, and it made me laugh. And I'll tell you why it made me laugh, and then I'll give you some thoughts on it. So when we moved from Arlington to Arkansas, we had two places. We had Arkansas as our bug out location, and we had Arlington as our primary residence. So we had already really stocked up the place in Arkansas. So when we moved, We took all our stuff with us and maybe put them in together. It wasn't that bad. We had everything organized there. We brought new stuff in, something that was not really a prepper item, but an excess like extra furniture and all we donated to charity. No problem. (laughs) Then two years later, we moved here where we had all the stuff. And I posted something about it, and somebody commented, and they said, I read Prepper and Moving, and I threw up in my mouth a little bit. (laughs) And it can be like that. So this person doesn't sound like they're that heavy into it. But I will tell you the number one item that most people don't get when they're getting ready to move that's a good item to get is a dumpster. Use it as an opportunity to get rid of shit that you can't sell and you're not going to use. So when we moved... We ordered a big-ass dumpster, and this big-ass truck towed it up our mountain, parked it up on one side of the the property, and we threw a ton of shit away. And I said after that experience, in the future, if I move and I can't sell it, 
and I don't need it, I'm going to set it on fire. So be careful if you're a prepper that as you're prepping and building up your stocks, that you're thinking about what do I ever have to do if I decide to leave this place? And I'm saying as much as I've tried to do that, in some ways it's worse now because I have these two huge shop buildings. So there's nothing that you want that you don't have a place for, and that can be really tiring. And we have actually cleaned house recently. We have a dumpster sitting out in the front right now. And we're getting rid of a lot of bulky shit that's hard to get rid of. But we're getting rid of some stuff that we're like, finally, like, hey, nobody wants this. We're probably not going to use it. We've had it this long. You know, get rid of it. So get rid of what you don't need. But in the end, it's it's like any other move. Moving sucks. I have a, a, a an idea that I think everybody should do once in their life. And it, it's called the find out who your friends are challenge, right? Because your friends are the people that will show up. When you have to move. Now, I'll never be able to do this now because I've given it away. And the people that will show up will be the people that listen. But this is the find out who your friends are moving challenge. You send out an email to all your friends that are in the area that you think you can count on. And the email goes something like this. For whatever insert made up fake reason here, we've lost our house. We have until next weekend. So this gives people plenty of time. There's no excuses, right? We have until next weekend to move. We have a big moving party planned Friday and Saturday next week. We'll take any help we can get. If you can be here Friday afternoon after work or Saturday morning or whatever it is, you know, whatever you do, let us know. RSVP. We'll do what we can to make sure that there's some pizza and beer for everybody. You know, all right. And you show up to help move. There's no moving trucks. There's no move happening. You have a lit, like a like literally you have like a valet for parking. You have a rock band hired. You have some of the best food you can get your hands on, and you throw a big fucking party. And when people show up, you're like, "Yeah, we're not moving. It's just a party." And you give your friends that show up to help you move, like the party of a lifetime. Like you have a person on standby to give people rides home if they drink too much. You have places for people to sleep it off. Right. You do it up. You got a band plan. You got like top notch five course meal, seven course meal, something like that. And you just say, I just did this for my true friends. Thank you for coming to help me in my time of need. Because the guy that will come help you move is a friend because no one wants to move. It sucks that bad. So uh, give me a chance to tell you that story. Right. Um, next. I got an email from a gentleman named Mark. Some of you know this Mark. He comes to a lot of our workshops here, though he hasn't been in the last one or two, I think. He's in the construction industry. He sent me in like an internal communication uh, construction uh, backlogs, which means projects that are behind are the lowest they've been since August last year. So they're and it continues to decline. That means there's less work in queue and about nine thousand people in the construction industry while unemployment has continued to go down about nine thousand construction workers in the last quarter lost their job year over year it's still a net positive but it's not commensurate with other sectors construction is the canary in the coal mine understand this about the economy construction starts taking off before the economy booms and it starts waning before the economy declines so I'm not going to say a lot about this other than it's just another indicator that this white hot inflation driven economy is is grinding down. So you got college campuses closing, you got construction going into a declining overall path. 
think about that as we go forward. That's all I'm going to say about that. Another person emailed me and they wanted to know if we could automate water, which animals can we raise without feeding them, letting them live on pasture alone? I'm going to start off with I I don't think in general most animals other than pure pasture grazing ruminants should you should even try to do this with. So things that spring to mind for me, cows, sheep, they're supposed to eat grass. If you have sufficient pasture and you have a management program that makes sure that they're rotated as necessary, they really don't need anything else. He asked about geese, chickens, and ducks. <sighs> ducks are iffy. Maybe, possibly, probably not the best. Chickens, chickens are going to need some supplemental feed in general. Geese can make a living on grass. You can raise goslings from hatched egg to finished bird in 11 weeks, 100% on grass. They are the closest thing to a cow in the way that they perform that has feathers in the world. Muscovy ducks are like, there it is right there. Yud must have been reading my mind. Got it right when I said it. Uh, Muscovy ducks are kind of like, I call them goose ducks, right? And, and not the way I call the current uh, baby ducks living with chickens, chicken ducks. I call them goose ducks because they're kind of like half goose, half duck. There's a lot of things about them that are more goose-like than duck-like, uh, including the hissing, right? The hissing, <laughs> right? Um, they really can make a living on grass, too. My view is when you're keeping an animal, if you have supplemental feed available, it's there if they need it, and then they're never going to go hungry, and they stay a lot easier to manage, so he also asked about rabbits. So if you can create some sort of rabbit tractor that gets moved sufficiently, then they can probably live mostly off grass. But rabbit pellets are so cheap, it probably makes sense to keep a hopper full of them at all times anyway. Because if you don't get a move done when you should, then they're starting to rely on the not-so-good forbs and grasses, or maybe stuff that's been overgrazed or something like that. So it just seems to make a lot of sense to me to keep some sort of supplemental feed around. But those would be the ones that I would say would do well. And you can definitely raise cattle and sheep and other ruminants 100% on pasture. What I would never try to raise 100% on pasture is a pig. I just wouldn't. I think pasturing uh, pork is one of the greatest ways to manage pork in the world. But pigs are an omnivore, and they tend to have dietary requirements beyond just pasture. Now, if you had a place where you also had heavy mass drop, then you could raise them off of that. But just pasture, I wouldn't do pork. Uh, I wouldn't try to do chickens just on pasture, and I wouldn't try to do ducks just on pasture. Of those three, I would tell you the duck will do the best out of the three. But I would still do some supplemental feed. What this person was doing was trying to automate as much as possible and minimize human labor I, I would say that it's not a lot of labor to make sure your animals have feed. And there's a lot of ways to automate extra feed. So supplemental feed could be in the form of a deer feeder, but instead of full of corn, it's full of your feed with a set throw time and capacity 
that handles the need of making sure your animals have the extra animal, uh, the extra the extra feed. And and Renegade says hair sheep, yeah, sheep, period, whatever kind of sheep, whether they're St. Croix or Katahdin's or a more traditional wool sheep. Yeah, they're they're definitely an animal that can live on pasture. And I guess goats, but I just I, I think goats are fine for other people. I don't want goats. They climb things. They get on roofs. They climb on top of cars. They get over fences. They cause all kinds of trouble. Goats are delicious in a taco. They're excellent when you cook a whole goat in a pit with with hot coals around it. But I, I don't like dealing with goats personally, and they stink when they rut. God, they stink. A buck billy, a billy goat in the rut, it just reek, reek. So I would prefer sheep. Uh, somebody's mentioning dorpers. Yeah, dorper sheep would be what I would personally raise if I was going to raise sheep in this climate or on a land my size. Uh, I wouldn't step up to cattle, so I would dorper sheep would be where I would go. Uh, last, real quick, I want to encourage you if you've not done so yet, join us at Grow Noster. You know, we had a question today about forming uh, local TSP meetups and things like that, meeting other people. Noster is so much more than what I thought it was before I got on it. Noster is the best connection to people I've ever found. It's taken some time to learn all the little quirks and stuff and all the little what, what certain things mean and adapt. And, and think of it like this. If you went to a bar and there's a bunch of this is a bar that is really a, a bar that regulars go to. They might have some terminology or slang that they throw around in there. You don't understand it first. But, you know, if you're not a dummy, you'll figure it out. And then you'll next thing you know, you're fitting in and you become a regular. I think all social media can be like that. And I think what's happened to a lot of people that when they first get on something like Noster and say, well, there's not much going on or I only see content about this or whatever. They forget what it's like to walk in the door the first time. So this person, you know, maybe they're not a big time influencer or anything, but they've got a pretty good book of influencers they follow. Plus, they've got a pretty good group of like followers that they have and connections that they have. And maybe they've been on Twitter for 10 years or more. And then, you know, you 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 go into something like Noster on day one and you're, you're connected to exactly zero people. And you're staring at a global feed. It's all Bitcoin content. I, I get feeling like you're kind of out in the pasture, so to say. But that's why I started Grow Noster. And that is hashtag Grow Noster. And we're already having people uh, having a hard time spelling it, which is funny because Noster is spelled a certain way. And the word grow is spelled a certain way. It's grow, G-R-O, Noster, N-O-S-T-R, all one word with a hashtag, just like it is on the screen right now. You You follow that hashtag or click on that hashtag and look and it's only been a week. And those of you that are on it, tell the other people here, the feed is full of diverse content. People making coffee, people, people building things for their animals, people gardening, people doing work on their cars. Like it is so much. More. And the reason is simple. Yes, most of the people there are into Bitcoin on one level or another, and it's what initially brought them there. But they're people. And Bitcoiners have cars and Bitcoiners have gardens and Bitcoiners put in alternative energy and Bitcoiners are all about liberty and freedom. And so they tend to like things like guns and 3D printing and all of the stuff that we talk about. The place is full of that. And all Grow Noster was was a way to help people figure out what they have in common. So you follow that tag and then you pick and choose who you follow and what you follow out of it. So all of a sudden you're like, oh, shit, there's a permaculture tag. Boom, you hit that. 
you can follow that tag. But then you can also start looking at people in there and go, this guy posts cool shit. I'm going to follow him, right? Or maybe you're into sports and you find something on a sport you like and you follow and you start building these networks. And now you have something, and this is so important to understand. As you build it, it will be the last time you have to go through this. Because if you want to go anywhere else, if it's Noster enabled, because Noster is not a site, it's a protocol. It's like saying email. When you make a connection on Noster, it's a lot like, not the same as, a lot like adding someone to your email list. You can talk to them anytime you want to now. Now, if you start using a different Noster enabled client and they don't use it, okay, then maybe you can't connect with them, but they still exist on other clients you can reach them on. And they're building all kinds of things for this, guys. There's a thing called Blogstack. It's like Substack, but it's on Noster. So that people can have their own newsletters and, and article farms and what have you, and it's completely uncensorable. Completely uncensorable. And it all plugs in to an existing payment network. A payment network that allows instant settlement in any amount down to fractions of a penny up to thousands of dollars or more instantaneously and everybody there either has a way to tie into that or could in five minutes. And I want to throw out a little suggestion for you guys here on this who are, I'm starting to see more and more of you on Noster. You're using the grow Noster tag. You're putting up cool shit. And I'm like, that's cool shit. I want to give them a zap, which means send you some, some sats, say 50 sats, a hundred sats, whatever. One dude, I was going to send him like a thousand sats. It's like a buck or so, but you know, I thought what he posted was really cool. It kind of made my morning. No lightning bolt. No, you do not have a wallet attached. Either get the Albi extension and use it to manage your public and private key on Noster, and then just take your email address and stick it in your profile for your LN URLs, what it's called. So, like mine is jackspearco at getalbi.com, or get wallet of Satoshi on your phone and get your weird email address they'll give you there and stick that in there, and all of a sudden your lightning bolt will show up. And then we can actually compensate you when you make a valuable contribution and you'll be surprised at how many people will do it. I net average 50 to a hundred thousand sats a day on Noster. Now I don't think everybody gets on there is going to do that, but you, you, you know what I get from Twitter, a bill for $8 a month for my blue check to make sure you know, it's me and nobody's scamming you. That's why I actually pay Elon is eight bucks. I don't get money in. I get money out. Now, it's, I think Twitter's profitable for me or I wouldn't waste my time being there. But I put most of my effort in Oster. Now, get a wallet set up and get linked. Also, don't get don't get tricked. I see this happen all the time. I just set up a new wallet attached to my Noster. Somebody zap me so I can test it. Tell that fool to zap himself. You can send yourself money in a circle if you want to. They don't need you to do that. They're just, they're just rugging you guys, man. So don't let that happen anymore. But most people there are really, really cool folks. Please check it out. Let's go ahead and handle some of your starred comments. Got a lot of them this time, so I'm going to go fast. Grumpy Green Guy, could you share your thoughts on buying a still from your new partner, Mile High? I get paranoid about the paper trail, even though it would only be for water and essential oils. Do you own a gun? Did you fill out a form to get a gun? Did you know you don't even have to fill out a form other than an order form to get a still? Just go buy the still. Um... If you're really worried about it, see if you can get somebody to 
take delivery for you or whatever, but I don't know, man. I bought my first mile high still six years ago, and no one's bothered me yet. I haven't had the ATF rope on in my garage. Go on YouTube and search for Make you Moonshine, and what do you – yeah, I'm not saying to go out and do what these stupid people are doing, because I do think they're stupid. But just look at how many people are actively making moonshine on YouTube and not being molested. Buying a still, I'm not too worried about that. And again, it's for making fuel. You know, it's making essential oils. It's for distilling water. You might accidentally make fuel that you spill in your mouth sometime, but it's purely an accident. And then be smart about what you do. But I wouldn't hesitate to purchase a still. Uh, Ghoulie says rabbit manure has worked well for the past few years. I don't know why I started that. It wasn't in all cats and it's not a question, but I agree. Rabbit manure is awesome. Jacob says I get $5 and some change deposited from my check to cash app. I buy sats and send it to the Exodus wallet. Okay. Good for you. You might want to up that allocation just a little bit. Ghoulie says, sends me a $10 super chat says buy some Bitcoin. Ha ha. I appreciate your insight, Jack. Yeah. I, I, I like you, dude. I've seen you around a long time. I don't mean to be too hardy. I'm just so tired of the crap. Like, what if the power goes out? What if the internet goes out? Like I said, most of you that ask me that are dead. You're dead if it happens. Uh, Gma Merkel says, I don't trust Bitcoin any more than any other currency. I think land is the answer. I'm going to bet, other than where you live, you own no land. I don't mean to be a dick. But everybody that says this. Everybody that says anything like this, it's always the same shit. I believe in gold. How much gold do you have? <laughs> Look, you don't trust. See, the whole point of Bitcoin is you don't trust Bitcoin. There's no trust. Bitcoin is trustless because it's math and energy and a fixed set of rules. The whole point of Bitcoin is that you need not trust it. But if you want to have fun staying poor, you're welcome to do so. And I feel that way about all of it at this point. Anyway, the mead maker says, Jack, currently eight days into carnivore. Any tips? Keep doing it for at least another 22 days. Do it for at least 30 days. And then you can decide if you want to reintroduce things like vegetables and stuff like that. But if you will do pure carnivore for 30 days, it will radically change your life. And if you do it for 15, it won't. And I would say that even better is 60. There's something that happens to your body if you stick to it. And my other thing would be, I don't mean water. I mean booze. Don't drink. Even if you're going to go into drinking in moderation again in the future, while you're in a protocol to lose weight and fix your health, your body has enough shit going on. It doesn't need any additional toxins. Alcohol is a wonderful creation of science. It's also a poison, okay? When you drink alcohol, you're consuming a poison. If you drink enough of it, it will kill you. That's how you know it's a poison, yeah? When you go into rapid weight loss, and if you keep doing this, dude, you will. Even if you don't have a lot of weight to lose, you're going to lose weight in places you didn't know you had it, fat that's infiltrated your organs, fat that's inside your, you know, maybe your stomach's not really pooched out or anything, but you have interstomach fat, Fat that's in your art, like fat that you have no ideas there, you will begin, your body will begin to get rid of that shit. You store toxins that you consume and inhale in your fat cells. When you go into rapid weight loss, you will have things like rashes. You will have things like little 
zits that are more like little mini boils and shit. You will have, again, rashes. Maybe you'll get keto flu, whatever. This is all these toxins being released into your body. I got gout for F's sake, right? Freaking, I'm in my 40s and I got gout. The hell's gout doing in a four? Well, it's because uric acid being dumped. So to me, when you're going through this adjustment, then I, I really recommend that you just water or sparkling water for your for your liquid and just leave it at that. And then, like I said, 60 days in, 30 days in, if you only want to go that far, you, you can start having you know, maybe a drink or two on Friday and, and be responsible with your drinking again. But just kill it for the time. I would also say unless you are already heavily engaged in physical training of some kind, just don't for about three weeks of it. Because, again, you're into this dietary adaptation. So go ahead and get through the first part of it and then start adding exercise and training to your routine. That's that's my tips on that. Uh, next up, Rachel says, if there's a problem with your butcher box discount, is there someone particular to contact or does that need to be you? If you have a problem with your butcher box discount, let me know about it and I will get it taken care of for you. Um, you can and probably should go through customer service and customer service people in any company, including ButcherBox, get turned over quite a bit. The standard answer that they would give somebody about a, a discount code is we don't do recurring discount codes, but they do recurring discount codes for the survival podcast audience. And I have that agreement firm. And whenever it happens, I can get it fixed. But usually customer service should be able to fix it. But if you get someone who tells you they don't do that anymore, don't get all upset or wound up about it. It's just a new person reading what the book says because, you know, telemarketing, basically reverse telemarketing. You answer the phone. Here's the book. It gives you the answers to common questions. And so what usually ends up happening, if that happens, then my contact has to go down to the CSRs and go, hello, everybody, hang on for a second. Listen here. If someone calls you from the survival podcast audience, we honor this discount code. Uh, Greg says, is it better to use an open top cooler than or a plain plastic tub to maintain temperatures? I don't know what you're talking about. I guess sous vide, you're better off with something covering the top if you have something to cover the top. It will work just fine without something covering the top. You're just constantly losing heat. So what I actually use, I use these things that are made out of Lexan, and they're for sous vide, and they have a cover with a hole that's specific for uh, a sous vide circulator to fit in. I've seen a lot of people cut holes in uh, the tops of coolers. And I've seen, because some of the coolers have like a really thick top, what people will do is they'll make a top out of plywood because it's a lot thinner. Because it's not something you're using every day or something like that. So you can just leave the lid open and put that on instead of cutting a hole in the lid of the cooler. But anything that puts a cap is going to hold in your heat better. I occasionally, in the past, before I got these containers... Maybe I should put them on T-spaz. Um, well, there's like a pot, and I would take like the pot lid and like put it on sideways, kind of like you do with a boil, except there's a pretty big gap, and I'd throw a, a, a towel over it. It's not going to catch on fire. It's steam, and you're generally cooking. You know, if you're cooking meat, you're cooking beef. If you're me, you're like at 135, 136. If you're doing it for my wife, you're at like 145. You're not going to start a fire with a temperature like that on a towel over steam. Uh, so that's that's my suggestion there. Uh, Ghoulie says, I bought this sous vide 
sous vide from Jack's link, it really does work excellent. Glad to hear that. I'm assuming you mean the one that I just showed, the Instapot one. Bill Hudson says, can you do anything with veggies? Yes, you can. You're going to be pushing your temps up quite a bit. Most of the stuff I've seen with veggies are between 170, 190 degrees on your temperature, and it actually takes longer to cook vegetables than it does meat. So um, I've tried a few. It works. I don't think it – here's why I think it makes sense. You can set a temperature. You can hold a slide. Now, you need a second sous vide to do this so that you can serve it at an exact temperature without it overcooking, kind of like you can do a steak. But the best thing I ever made as a vegetable with sous vide was asparagus, and it wasn't better than throwing it in a pan with some bacon grease. The thing I haven't tried, but I have a feeling would be really good, I just don't eat very much of it anymore, is corn on the cob. I think corn on the cob would be fantastic with some butter and sous vide and being able to get that kind of crisp pop bite, but it's still cooked through. I think it would be really good for that. But mainly it's a meat thing for me. Uh, Juwan Merkel says, not with government-backed loans. The schools are about the money. Yeah, but the people have to be willing to take the loans. And that's what I'm telling you, that the enrollments have been in decline for 14 years. 14 years, every year, the school enrollments for college have gone down Every year, consecutively, for 14 years, these schools are going under, left and right. And, yes, the big ones will survive because it's like the banks. What's the plan for the banks? Get rid of all the regional banks and have four, six, eight giant national highly regulated banks that can report all your shit to the government in a much more consolidated way. We pay for other countries' health care. Yes, we do. Not really relevant to what we're talking about, Jacob. YouTube University has taught me more useful information than my two-year degree ever would have. And if you had a four-year degree, you'd probably say the same thing. I, I do believe, honestly, and I always try to say this when I beat up on college, there are degree paths that make sense. If you want to be an aeronautical engineer, you probably need to. And it's a perfect career path for a university path. If you want to be a doctor, you got to go to you got to go to college and you got to get into med school and, and what have you. If you want to be a lawyer, that's a pathway. And there are other career paths that really college is the way. And there's some that college is the only way, but it shouldn't be. And there are some that college is really perfect for. Again, I think a lot of the STEM disciplines, they really lend themselves to that university atmosphere. But we have so many people coming out of these schools with degrees that are absolutely useless. I mean, people, if they had straight A's, they still can't do anything. Uh, Gma says, I live outside a tourist town, uh, South Corner, sitting, cone liquors, fund us. Don't know what that means. You, you're going to use all caps. Also, turn down the... Uh, the slang. I may not understand you. Uh, there's an Amish guy up the road that's trying to sell bottled worm tea from Ghoulie. You will buy some. He probably makes good. Good. That'd be another option, too, with uh, inoculation of your biochar. Worm tea would be excellent for that. Uh, Ghoulie says, not sure if it lasts at room temperature. Maybe a good business idea. I don't know how long your worm tea is going to stay really active at room temperature. 
I would say anything that's in liquid form by its very nature is going to very rapidly have any oxygen in it used up. So your anaerobes are going to be very stable. Your aerobics, which are your more beneficial bacteria and fungi, less so. So if I was going to do worm tea, I would be aerating it and getting it out and used as quickly as possible, just like compost tea. Danny Scott Payton says, for a new investor starting out, how much would you allocate stock market uh, bonds, crypto, I mean, Bitcoin, gold, silver, et cetera, Jack's not a financial advisor. Yeah, I really don't know. So I don't know you, your goals, your timeline, how much money you have, et cetera. Because if you say you have $10,000, the allocation is not even important. You really don't have much to leverage into investments at all yet. Right. If you have five, you know, if you're contributing monthly, that's going to build rather rapidly. But still, it's more important that you save enough to have money to invest initially. Um, I'll just say. Mathematically, historically, the safest place to put money right now is Bitcoin. That does not mean all my money's in Bitcoin. I have quite a significant amount of money in the stock market. I also have a professional investment manager who stays on top of that for me. Um, I also have a very significant portion of my wealth in Bitcoin. I also like, you know, beat up my people with the whole, I believe in land. I believe in land too. I have real estate holdings. So I try to stay diversified and I try to look for the, but I think the more important thing is when is the, when is the buying opportunity? And you need to figure that out for yourself. I can't, give you hard numbers and things like that. But I would say some allocation, all of those things. And it's something you need to decide with your family. And if you have one, an investment advisor, if you have a good one, good luck finding one because they're not that easy to find. But there are some good ones. I'll just say that. Gooley says, my great grandma used to make roast goose on Christmas with cherry sauce. Best ever. Don't really know what that has to do with the conversation today, but I would eat some goose with some cherry sauce on it. Jeffrey says, thoughts on mentioning Grow Noster notes on your streams, like how you mentioned boosts on Fountain to encourage people to onboard. Oh, I see what you're saying. So, like, like give call-outs to people who send me nice amounts of uh, sats on Noster. That's probably not a bad idea, uh, at least to get people more familiar with what's going on. Um, anyway, with that, I think we're about ready to wrap up. we got another uh, – Bitcoin has hot and says, has not Bitcoin had huge losses over time? Absolutely not. Bitcoin's been volatile over time, but all it's had over time since inception is continuous gains. It doesn't mean you couldn't buy the top of the market and end up way down here for a time. That's volatility. That's not losses. A loss is only a loss when you take the loss by selling the product. I've never lost any money on Bitcoin. Just going to say that. Uh, it is a long-term hold dollar cost average across time. Want to learn says thoughts on starting a home services business headed into a recession. I'm an IT person for my day job. I feel like tech is saturated, highly competitive. Yeah. There's still tons of people that need help. And when people say they don't want to go into a market cause it's saturated, I ask them. So what you're saying is it's a really big market with a lot of customers and you're afraid of the competition and having to take some of that away from them. So what can you do to stand apart from your competitors? Um, I think everybody should be building a income of some level for themselves one way or another. I will say, though, that a lot of times people, people tend to go hard on into what they already know. And sometimes that's good and sometimes it's not. 
The problem is it can typecast you and, and prevent you from seeing other opportunities. And what I mean by that is when you, when you're like, well, I'm an IT person. So if I'm going to do a service business, I'm going to do IT services. Okay. But why do you love what you do? Okay. Then you probably should do that. Or are you going to typecast yourself in IT services or tech services being Bill can't connect to his email and needs your help or his computer won't reboot? Or do you take that skill and do something with it that is not directly marketed as a technical thing like homestead automation? Because if you're good with technical services, with a little bit of YouTube University, you could probably be programming Adrenos and setting up irrigation systems and chicken coop doors and all kinds of shit. And what I would do is I would create a package, homestead automation level one, level two, level three, of the most common things that are automatable on a homestead, and I would put a package price on them because people like to know, like, oh, I can't afford this. Oh, I can't afford this. And you don't want to talk to the person that can't afford it. If they actually can't afford it, because here's a sales lesson. There's two things you can't sell to. Only two things that you cannot overcome as a salesperson. One is willful ignorance. Willful ignorance cannot be overcome. The person that does not want to understand, they've already made up their mind and they've chosen to remain ignorant to what you're selling. You cannot overcome that. Yeah. The other one, poverty. If the person cannot afford you, you don't even want to talk to them because you don't have time. Not if you're actively building a business. That doesn't mean they're not valuable as a human being. They're just not your customer. So you price your packages and you say these are standard pricing. Custom options may apply, something like that, because, you know, you have to run an extra 80 feet of wire because this guy's thing is further out or whatever. He's like me and you can't bury a cable or, you know, no idea. But this would be an average install cost. Right. And it gives people an idea what you can do. And then you have custom don't see it here. Don't worry. If it's automatable, we can automate it. Now, does that mean person that just asked me this question should go do that business? It does not. Maybe you should. Maybe you shouldn't. What I'm saying is take the skill. And instead of worrying about helping other people with the skill, doing things for other people with the skill, because it's, it, it's a total differentiator. There's so many people who don't even know. You mean I could and I would do it as home and homestead automation. You know, there's people, I know you can buy a ring doorbell and any doorknob can set it up, but a lot of people don't even aspire to be a doorknob. And then you got a lot of people like me. There's a lot of shit I could do. And all I do is go, how long is that going to take me? Three hours. How much money do I make in three hours? Oh, okay. If I take the time away from doing the thing that makes me money, how much am in the hole I am? Or... Yeah, yeah, I could take the three hours that I'm going to spend outside in my garden today. What's that worth to me? Not produce wise, but like, what is that quality time worth to me? I want to do that. I don't want to do this thing. I'll pay somebody to do it. Not because I can't, because I don't want to. Or because financially, I'm better off spending my day doing a podcast, keeping my business running, running a sale, making the money that way than taking all that time off to say, you know, saving a hundred dollars. Cause if I, if it's an install, I have to pay for the material anyway. So let's say the install is a hundred, say the install was two hundred dollars. I can take a day off and 
save $200 or I can work a day and make $500. I'm working for the $500 paying a guy 200. There's a lot of people like that out there. So if you have a skill set, one of the ways to diversify without leaving the skill set behind is what does the skill set enable? Like I know there's people out there that you're really good with tools like wood shop tools and stuff like that. There's probably a business in setting people up with their own tool systems and all because people buy, they don't know how to use it, right? Shop introduction, shop setup. There's probably a business in that. I don't know if it's enough as a business standalone, but it's probably a revenue unit within a business. It's probably something you do two or three times a month, but it's extra money and it gets you in the door with people and it gets you connections. And one last thing on this business building stuff. And we got to wrap up. Another rule of sales. The only reason that you cold call is to get into somebody else's warm market. Cold calling in sales has such a low hit rate. If all the sales you get from cold calling are only the ones you get from people you contacted, if you're not getting referrals, you will not make it in sales. You will not make it. That's why it's so important. If you're selling for somebody else, that you're selling for somebody that's good, that's going to leave a good impression. But when you, when you go to the cold market, it's awful. It's being told to fuck off 10 times for every one time somebody just hangs up on you. Right? Like, I don't got time for this. And they hang the phone up. Right? Or slams the door in your face or whatever it is. That's cold calling. Like the majority of people literally tell you to fuck off or something very similar. You got to get a thick skin. But if your hit rate is, let's say, 10% of people, you get a lead. And of those, half of them you sell. That's for every 100 people you talk to, you get five sales. But every one of those five sales is not going to give you referrals. But enough should that you, you leverage those five into 10. You leverage those five into 10. You establish relationships with those people. So even if you were doing shop setup for a guy and maybe his referrals, maybe you're a cabinet maker, right? The fact that he knows you're a cabinet maker, maybe you get, because what's one, you know, you're talking $10,000 and up. Your minimum small kitchen, you're talking a $10,000 job as a cabinet maker. So if you can pick up two or three or four that are kind of like consulting gigs, getting people started in their own little personal hobby shops and all, but even one of those leverages into a sale and it's that kind of a sale. Now you've really got something and you got to start like not, when I give you these business scenarios, please don't think Jack's saying do this thing. I want that to open your mind and make you start getting really critically thoughtful about what you could do with what you know and what you have. There's so much opportunity in this world today, and you have an unlimited capacity for marketing because you have the Internet. And it's just as easy to fail as it ever was. That's the thing. It's You have not been guaranteed success. But if you follow the rules of business and you work really hard, it's easier to succeed than it ever has been. Yeah. With that, we've wrapped things up. Not going to do the T-SPAS item of the day because we already did that. We'll remind you real quick. Do your online shopping starting at tspaz.com. If I seem like I come off the top rope, 
and elbow people ahead a little bit over the objections to Bitcoin. I'm sorry. I've heard these objections for what is it now? Uh, well, 10 years for me personally. It's been, these objections have been around as long as Bitcoin is. Uh, Bitcoin's been here for more than a decade. It's not going anywhere. I'm done with it. Um, think of it this way. You go see like this rock band from the 70s. And you're like, play that one song. And they're like, we don't want to play that one song that we played like nine million times. Well, you paid for the ticket. It's a concert. And Jimmy Buffett or Bachman Turnover Driver, whoever should shut up and play the one song. But if you keep asking me the same shit that I've answered over and over again, just because you want to object to it, maybe sometimes I'll act like that singer and say, I don't want to play that shit no more. <laughs> Anyway, with that wrapped up, uh, tune in tomorrow. We'll have a great interview Thursday. Uh, we will be uh, going with a Just Jack show. I don't know what subject yet, but it won't be a variety show like this. I'm going to dig into something. I just haven't decided what yet. Friday, expert council Q&A show, then two weeks of rewinds. Yes, I am going to the west coast of the United States. Uh, I'm going to go hang out in the middle of the Redwood Forest with my wife and not give a damn about the world for a couple of weeks, and then I'll be back. But I've got some really great rewind set up for you during this time. With that, hope you enjoyed today's show. I will catch you tomorrow with another one. Are they going to bail you out or just run you around? They said you should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month. There's a better way to do this Let me show you a better way You don't have to be another face in the crowd You don't have to live the way they tell you Yeah.